So I'm jet lagging tonight. I just returned from a little trip to Italy with my mom and my sisters and my sister-in-law. I have a cousin who married an Italian man. So um, we were in Florence, and lo and behold, perfect timing. We're studying about David, and look what I got to see in um, the museum in Florence, Michelangelo's statue of David. And I've known, I've seen the statue before, but it really hit me this time that he's got his sling over his shoulder and his hand. He's got a stone. And yes, he's very buff. He looks very strong. Our Bibles do tell us that he was handsome. But I just, I think that he was even stronger at heart. He had a heart that, especially as he went out to face Goliath, wow, such a heart full of faith. He knew how big God is. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about that tonight, but I just loved, I had to share that with you. So fun to get to, to see that. So tonight, we're jumping into First and Second Samuel, and you had a quick snippet into the, quick peek into the book of Psalms. And just a little tidbit for you. I don't know if you've ever memorized all of the books of the Bible, but if you're, if you're, this might be a great time to be doing that as we're going through, or maybe doing some review if you haven't done that in a while. And so we know the first five books in the Pentateuch are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then after that, we have two J's and an R. That's what helps me. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And then we're jumping into this section where there are the, the first and seconds, right? There are three books that are first and seconds. And so this is my tip. It's Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. It's alphabetically backwards, right? S, K, and C. So if you're needing a little, little helpful um, tip for that, there you go. So first and second Samuel, here we see God revealed as the sovereign king. He's not just king over a nation in a period of time. He's not just the king over Israel. He's the king over all nations, over all of creation, and forever. He, he reigns eternally, right? Today, <laughs> thousands of years later from this time period that we're studying, he is still enthroned on high and lord over all. And we see this so clearly depicted in First and Second Samuel. And what I love about these these two books, or Samuel itself, is that it's framed by two songs. Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, and then David's song, song that's in 2 Samuel 22. And I want to encourage you to read both of those songs. They're beautiful. And we see some of the themes of the book in both of these songs. The first is the reversal of, of fortunes. When you look at, especially at 1 Samuel, I would describe it as with two X's like this. We're seeing Eli's downfall and Samuel's being raised up. And we're seeing Saul's downfall and David being raised up. Okay, We're seeing the reversal of fortunes. God raises up the lowly and he, bring, he lowers those who exalt themselves. And so we see this pattern in this book. And we also see in, in 
sorry, I don't know what, what to do. <laughs> so you'll just have to be put up with <laughs> the sounds that are coming periodically. Um, that God knows the heart. Didn't you notice that in some of the scriptures you read? But uh, Hannah in her song says, um, speaks of this in 1 Samuel 2, 3. And we see it at David's anointing, right? Where it's so clear. <laughs> Lord says to Samuel, oh man, you all look at the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. I know David's heart. That's why I'm choosing him. And then we also see, especially in David's song that concludes, is at the end of the book, God is his rock and refuge. And when you remember that he spent over 10 years hiding and fleeing from Saul, right? He experienced God as his rock and refuge. So I encourage you to look at both of those songs. When we look at 1 Samuel, some themes just in that book, God's kingships, kingship and Israel's kings. God chooses Israel's king here and establishes the monarchy in Israel. And through this royal line of David will come the promised Messiah king who will bring blessing to all nations. So we're seeing here that God is continuing to fulfill his covenant promises that he gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He has not forgotten. He is still working out his plans. Where we wrapped up at the end of last week, and Julie did such a beautiful job <laughs> rushing through all of those books. Where we, the last verse in the book of Judges is Judges 21-25, and it goes like this. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In that period, the period of the Judges, we saw the downward spiral of sin in Israel. We know that Israel was to be unique from all other nations. It was to be a theocracy. God was their, to be their king and protector and their guide in every area of life and providing order and justice in their community. Yet the Lord had promised Abraham that kings would come in his family line, and he had given Moses instructions regarding these kings. We find it. Um, Moses telling of this in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. <clears throat> One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over, over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. The Lord was basically letting Moses and all of Israel know that the kings of Israel were not to be like the kings of the other nations who acquired horses for military battles, right? 
who acquired wives. They would just do whoever they wanted. They could do as they please, and they would acquire many wives. And they would accumulate wealth for themselves. And they would exalt themselves over the people. God is saying Israel's kings are not to be like that. They are not to be like that. And then he goes on in verse 18 to say, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law, as in the the Pentateuch, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So other kings would write their own laws, but Israel's kings were to receive the laws from the Lord and to do as he commanded them him to, to actually do, obey God's word. In verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Israel's kings were to be God's choice. They were to reflect his heart and character, to be a godly example to all of the Israelites, Why? So that all the nations would be drawn to the Lord. If you have time, you're welcome to look up 1 Samuel 8, verses 10 to 18, where the Lord warns the people through Samuel that having a king is not going to go well. The kings will fail to be faithful shepherds. But the Lord does meet their demand for a king when the people ask for it. They demanded. They asked for a king. A few challenging questions here. As I think of that last verse in the book of Judges, are we ones who do what is right in our own eyes? Or are we focusing on God's instructions? Are our eyes continually reading this day and night? looking to the Lord and his word. And then I think also, are we making demands of God? And I have to confess, the Lord convicts me that sometimes when I come to him in prayer, that's exactly what I'm doing. The other theme that we find in 1 Samuel is God's providence. God's guidance, care, and the unfolding of his sovereign plans and his will and his time. God is enthroned on high and he's powerfully sustaining and guiding humanity. His purposes are unfolding in the day-to-day lives of his people. He is one who is present continually and graciously guiding his people moment by moment, day by day. Didn't you catch this when you got this little window into Hannah's life? And you see the scenario that's going on with her and Penina, and don't you just catch the heartache there and the longing? 
And you see this window when she's grieving and pouring out her heart to God. And then Eli misunderstands the situation completely and accuses her of being drunk. And you just see that the, the Lord's plan is unfolding, right? It's unfolding in the days, the day-to-day moments of our lives. And then you see David. He's bringing lunch to his brothers, right? But the Lord has him there at just the right time just to hear Goliath defying the Lord. And he says, oh, there's no way I'm not going out there to fight because I want to lift up. I have to defend my God's name. Sometimes God's providence seems to be hidden from us. It's in the times where we look back and see how his beautiful plans have unfolded in our lives. Just a few weeks ago, I was able to attend my, I'm telling you how old I am, my 30th college reunion. (laughs) And I was asked to speak at the class dinner. And so I had some time to reflect on the last 30 years of my life. Oh, that's a good thing to do, isn't it? I told my classmates, when I graduated at 22, I was oh so young, and I had no idea how life would unfold. But I have to say, looking back now, and I just, I get choked up a bit because I think, I had no idea how much better life would be than I thought it could be, and that God has just poured blessing upon blessing that I could have never even dreamed of. And yet, at the same time, in the midst of how good God has been and how good life has been, there have been some really, really hard things that I could never have imagined either. And yet, as I look back and can see, I can see how even in the hard things that God has brought good, Oh, we can trust in his providence, ladies. We can. There are some heroes that we find in First and Second Samuel. I mentioned Hannah. And I would call her a hero because I love that she followed through on her promise to God. That when she begged God to give her a son, she said, I'm going to give him to you, Lord, if you give me a son. Sure enough, she did. After he was weaned, she brought Samuel to that Eli who had misunderstood her (laughs) and whose sons were definitely not a a good influence. (laughs) But she trusted the Lord with her son. And I think, oh, whether our kids are five years old or 25, (laughs) we give our children to the Lord. They're not ours, they're really his anyway. And I think if you're here tonight and you've been one of those like Hannah, longing for a child. And maybe that prayer has not been answered in the way that you wish. Or maybe you've lost a child. I pray that the Lord is present with you and comforting you and working beautiful things out of those heartbreaking situations. Hannah, may we trust the Lord like she did. And Samuel, he learned to hear from the Lord. In 1 Samuel three nineteen and 20, 
says this, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. That phrase, that the Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground, (laughs) really gives this picture that Samuel heard And then he proclaimed the words that he heard from the Lord. And all of those prophecies came to pass. May we learn to hear from the Lord like Samuel did. And then Saul. I don't know. I guess I put him in this section on heroes. And I shouldn't have. Because really his life is a tragedy. Saul... Really, the people got what they wanted when they asked for a, for a king, when they got Saul. They wanted a king like the kings of other nations, a military leader who would conquer their enemies and bring peace to their land. And that's what they got in Saul. But over time, he did not obey the Lord's word given to him through the, Samuel the prophet. And we find in 1 Samuel 13 and, and 15 his disobedience. He acted like a priest and offered sacrifices which was once again copying, oftentimes kings from other nations would fulfill that priestly role. And he knew full well that that wasn't what the Lord had designed. And then he did not fully obey the Lord's instructions um, for a battle. He spared a king. And then he pillaged kind of the, the best sheep and oxen to take them home for himself. And I think of what I used to tell my kids when they were young, That partial obedience is not true obedience. So Saul looked like a king on the outside. He was tall and strong and a a brave military leader. But over time we see that he did not have the character of a godly king. When David came on the scene, Saul became completely consumed by jealousy. And he heads down this horrible path of self-destruction. When David was victorious over over Goliath and the Philistines, and they returned home. The women sang, Saul has killed thousands, David his ten thousands. And that song drove Saul crazy. He pursued David for over ten years. And so we find that although usually a king would reign for his lifetime, that Saul was rejected because he did not obey the Lord, because he sought his own honor instead of the Lord's honor, because he rejected the Lord's kingship. The Lord rejected him. So the Lord chose David as his successor. What a tragedy Saul's life was. And so a few more, my goodness, convicting questions tonight. How is your obedience? I think, oh Lord, is there, is there an area of my heart where I'm rejecting your rule and your reign? And then when I think of Saul's jealousy, I think, is there a role that I'm grasping for that the Lord has not given to me? And then Jonathan, once again, he's in great contrast to his father Saul. He is so humble and faithful. He covenants with David and is faithful to support him again and again. He does not grasp for the role of king that he thought that really he could have thought was rightly his. He was the prince, right? 
Saul's son. This is beautifully symbolized in 1 Samuel 18.4 when Jonathan gives his robe, his armor, his sword, and his bow and his belt to David. We see him risking his life for David and laying aside his claim to the throne saying that he will serve alongside him. This is humility at its best. And I think, Lord, may we be humble and faithful like Jonathan. And then David, God's anointed king. David was just a young shepherd boy, but God looked at him and he saw a king. When we think of David, the phrase that we often think of is that he was called a man after God's own heart. And I have to tell you, over, over the years I've had a hard time with this. <laughs> because I think there's no human that has a heart that is fully <laughs> longing after God. Yet I think this was given to him by grace. The Lord saw who he would become, that over time that he would be loyal, that he would have a heart for God, that he would love God. But I want to be sure to mention that the word heart in the original Hebrew language is leb or labab, and it actually means heart, mind, and will. So I think there's a double meaning here. We find that typical translation that you find in your Bibles, <laughs> a man after God's own heart or a man who's loyal to God, but it also means that David was God's choice. He was the man of God's own choosing. And so we see this, it's this fulfillment of what God had talked to Moses about long beforehand, that the kings would be God's choice. We find that Paul also mentions David when he's preaching in the synagogue in Antioch and giving the gospel, preaching of Jesus, the Messiah that has come, and, and recalling Israel's history. And he calls David not only a, a man after God's own heart, but the one who would do, do God's will as well. And then we have to just touch on David and Goliath, <laughs> one of my favorite parts of David's life, lifetime and his story. We find this in 1 Samuel 17. And there, David has come to bring his brother's lunch, as I mentioned, and he is absolutely sure that he is ready to go to battle to fight Goliath, the giant. And he says to King Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul seeks to discourage him. He says, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war since his youth. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And then David calls out to Goliath, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And he goes on to say, So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know 
that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David is small and young. He's not as big as Saul. Saul tries to give him his suit of armor, but David's drowning in it. He takes it off. So he goes out before the giant Goliath with no armor at all. But I believe he knew that he had a big God. And he knew that the Lord and all his hosts were on his side. And it doesn't matter <laughs> that he didn't have a sword. He only had a sling and a few stones. Because his, his heart was trusting in this awesome God who David honored <laughs> and, and was fighting to lift up his name. I have to ask you tonight, how big is your God? And I pray that that question will come to your mind the next time that you're in a battle. That you're in a situation, maybe others would discourage you from even going out to fight. We have a big God who works in ways that we cannot see with our eyes. And then 2 Samuel, a few themes here. The picture of this book is like this. <laughs> it's a pyramid. We see the rise of David, we see his tragic failure, and then we see his downfall. That's, that's the picture of 2 Samuel. This book includes 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. When we're looking at the big umbrella, this is definitely a key, key passage. Because it's here that God covenants with David and promises him that his kingdom will last forever. And within that promise is the promise of the Messiah. David here wants to build a permanent house for the Lord, a temple where the ark and all of the tabernacle's furnishing could reside, a place for the Lord to dwell in the midst of his people in the promised land that the Lord has given to them. But God says something interesting here. He says, I will build you a house. And what he means is, I will build you a dynasty, a kingdom. And I want to make sure, I, in your notes, I think I put, 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 16, and I cross out 12. It's the two key verses here regarding this covenant. These covenant promises are verse 14 and 16. Verse 16 goes like this. God says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then verse 14 says, I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. This verse right here <laughs> foretells of Christ. It is cited, 2 Samuel 7, 14 is cited in Hebrews 1, 5. I encourage you as you have time to go ahead and read that. So the, the New Testament writer in Hebrews is saying, this is a promise for telling of Christ. Now, I have to mention that a gal from yesterday's study, she said, I have a really hard time with this because the second half of that verse talks about 
how when, when he sins, and it really, I want to give you this tip here, that that verse is also talking literally about David's son Solomon, who will sin, and God is being gracious and saying, but I'm not going to reject him. I'm going to continue to, I will forgive him and, and remain with him. But because that's cited there in Hebrews 1, we have to see it as kind of a double meaning. It's called census plenier, <laughs> that it speaks of Solomon in this specific David's time, but it's also got another meaning that's going to unfold in that greater narrative to come. And I think of Jesus, the promised king, who sets aside the glories of heaven, becomes human, and is obedient, just as the Lord had commanded. He was the one king who was fully obedient. And what does his obedience look like? It looks like laying down his life. He's obedient to the point of being willing to die on a cross to bring salvation to this world. He is the promised king who blesses, brings blessing to all the nations. A few other memorable moments from David's life. He brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It had been captured by the Philistines, who had actually returned it to Israel because God had brought such trouble in their midst because they had taken the Ark. David bought the land for where the temple would be built. He established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. God is continuing to fulfill his covenant promises, and we see Israel is now a unified kingdom, a unified nation. God is is at work. I love David's mercy to Saul. You think over those 10 years, he could have had maybe a little bitterness stored up in his heart to Saul. But we see he showed mercy to him. Two times he had the opportunity to kill him. One time in a cave where Saul was actually went in to use the restroom in the cave. And David cut off a corner of his robe. He was that close. And the men, the band of men that were surrounding David encouraged him <laughs> to take Saul's life, but he didn't. And then another time, when David found Saul and all of his men sleeping, and the scriptures tell us that the Lord put them into a deep sleep, and Saul's sword was standing in the ground, and David was able to take his sword but both times he showed mercy to Saul. And then we see also how he showed mercy to Saul's grandson, if, you can, if I can say it right, Mephibosheth. <laughs> he welcomed Mephibosheth at his table every day and made sure that he was well cared for. Well cared for. And then we find David's tragic failure and... Forgiveness in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. This is David's worst moment. He breaks half of the Ten Commandments, coveting, adultery, murder, lying, stealing. And when Nathan confronts him, David replies with humility, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan responds with this word, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. And I think of how David knew the same God that had been revealed to Moses. Remember, Julie, we looked at this last week. 
where Moses had said, show me your glory, and God passes by and proclaims his name, proclaims his character to him, right? That he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, right? His steadfast love will remain to thousands of generations, and yet he will punish sin to the third and fourth generation. I think David knew the Lord was merciful. And we find in Psalm 51 that David does give a full confession. But he comes to the Lord counting on his mercy. Even though he knows he doesn't deserve it, he knows that that's what his God is like. And he doesn't just want to go through the ritual cleansings or offer sacrifices. He asks God for a clean heart and a right spirit. And he believes that God's mercy is greater than his sins. Oh, ladies, the next time you come to the Lord in confession, pull out Psalm 51. Pull out Psalm 51. A few highlights. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David knew that God's grace was greater than his sin. And I just want to encourage you tonight. Maybe you've been tempted to define yourself by your life's worst moment. Maybe you've had a hard time moving on from something that you you regret so greatly. I want to just speak to you tonight and proclaim that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ... (laughs) That your heart is washed clean. He's given you a new heart. His mercy is greater than your sin. Last but not least, I just want to mention the book of Psalms. This was the Israelites' hymnal that they used in worship. It's a book of poetic prayers. 150 psalms organized into five books. Praises and laments that ends with this great crescendo of praise. And its theme is this. It's about the Lord's reign and instruction and his people who by his grace have been rescued respond to him as king and say, I don't want to be queen or king of my life anymore. I want, you, I want to live under your reign. I want to live according to your instructions. See, I don't know if you all are a little bit like me, but I find that a lot of times I try to take on God's jobs. And so I would just encourage you tonight, let him be your king. Let him be your king. There's a chorus in the song, Amazing Love, that we sing in church some Sundays. And the phrase is just, you are my king, Jesus. 
You are my king. And my prayer for you and me tonight is that we would live in the day-to-day moments as if he, he is enthroned on high, that we wouldn't take on his jobs, and that we would trust him, live under that reign, that we would follow where he leads us. Blessings to you all tonight. Thanks.